This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. Welcome, and good evening, Mr. Khan. It is truly a pleasure to welcome you to San Francisco tonight. And um, I think I, you've made more than 150 public appearances since your speech at the DNC in July of 2016. So I just want to take a minute to ask you, how are you doing, you and your family, after being catapulted into the public eye in this way? Dr. Alwar, thank you. Thank you very much for honoring me with your presence, and thank you for this wonderful uh, sanctuary for us to be assembled here. Thank you for your presence. But uh, before I tell you about myself and, uh, and uh, uh, how I am doing, uh, our thoughts and prayers are f with our brothers and sisters that are suffering because of the fires in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. So may God be with them and protect them and keep them safe and lessen their burden. So our thoughts and prayers are with them. Uh, second, if there are any veterans in the audience, we are grateful for your service. Without your leadership, without your service, your family's sacrifice, we would not be enjoying the freedoms that we, are, we enjoy. And the men and women and their families, if there are an audience of our law enforcement, of our military, without your service and defense of our country and our constitution, the freedoms that we enjoy, we will not be enjoying them. So we are grateful to you and to your families. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, this is my 176th presence before the wonderful <laughs> brothers and sisters. And uh, uh, I uh, have continued to travel throughout the nation, throughout the country. Portland, Oregon, this is my fourth time to San Francisco, the blessed city of good people. And uh, uh, Portland, Oregon to Houston to Dallas to Cedar Rapids, Iowa, Minneapolis, Pittsburgh, Toledo, literally every corner of this blessed land I have traveled and I have answered the questions and concerns of the communities as we will today. Uh, the more I travel, and this is what I'm looking forward to sharing with, the, with you now that you have graced me with your presence, uh, that this nation is amazingly hopeful. It doesn't appear on the surface. And so you will say, well, offer us the proof. Why you say this nation is hopeful? It doesn't look like, it doesn't feel like, but I'll share the proof with you of how hopeful this nation is 
because of its goodness of its founding values and uh, I will offer some proof so but I'm doing well things are moving along family is well Ghazala is under the weather that is why she didn't join me normally she does but uh, all is well Great. thank you thank you and I'm very excited to hear about the hope later on that sure. you're coming to us with sure and um Tonight, I wanted to talk about this amazing memoir that you have just published called An American Family, A Memoir of Hope and Sacrifice. And I bring up this book because there's so much in it that I myself appreciate as, as an immigrant, as someone that is now an American. And stories are just inspiring and resonant. And it also lets us learn more about you and um, um, the, the, the resilience and the courage that you continue to walk with in the world. And so I'd like to start by um, mentioning the first few chapters in the book where you describe your childhood and youth in Pakistan and open us into that world. Can you share something with us about that era in Pakistan from your experience? Sure, uh, Dr. Alwar. Uh, the experience of immigration is common even though this book is titled and the name of the author is Kizer Khan, not at all, any one of us could have written similar experiences, any one of us. When we migrate from one place to another place, we leave everything that is familiar behind. We leave our elders that we buried in that land behind and we come to new place with the hopefulness and with this determination that we will make our life better, our children's life better, and our generation's life better, our community's life better. So that is the spirit of the book. By the way, there is another book that we wrote for our, uh, for our middle school children. Uh, we were invited to a school, uh, middle school, and I noticed that uh, children have printed the Constitution of United States from the internet and they have stapled it and highlighted it. So I asked their teacher, is there a book for middle school children about our constitution, about our Bill of Rights and Declaration of Independence? He said, no, there isn't any that is not partisan. There are books which are partisan, but we don't subscribe to those books. So we quickly put together, it's called This Is Our Constitution. It's for middle school students. And uh, today, this morning, I went to Hall Middle School and amazing reception by almost 500 uh, middle school students. They all received the gift of that book. Uh, so the exercise of writing these books are uh, for a purpose. Proceeds from both of these books have been uh, endowed for a scholarship under the name of Captain Himayun Khan uh, at University of Virginia. The scholarship is titled Captain Himayun Khan Memorial Scholarship. Uh, it is endowed in perpetuity meaning year after year after year that a scholarship will be awarded to the new coming student on need based. And we received a card a few days ago from the first recipient of the scholarship. Among other sentiments, there is one sentiment that this recipient expressed and saying that, thank you for making university education possible for me. 
So, so the purpose of these books is for that uh, uh, allocated to that uh, gesture. So Captain Himayun Khan's life continues to um, give us hope and, uh, and, and some goodness continues to come out. Talking about my uh, childhood, I grew up uh, uh, in a very modest circumstances, uh, yet we were grateful. I, uh, being eldest, uh, it was thought by my parents and by my grandparents that uh, uh, because of the limited resources that my parents had, that I will live with my grandparents. So I grew up uh, under their uh, light and under their grace. Um, every night my grandfather would come. We did not have electricity when I was growing up. Uh, so we made the best of those moments. Even today I remember those wonderful uh, moonlit nights when he used to come and sit at the edge of my cot, my bed. Uh, I, we slept, uh, if the weather was okay, we slept under open sky and he would sit and when the moon was strong enough for him to read, he would read me in a story. Uh, when it wasn't that strong, he would uh, uh, paraphrase a few stories for me. And uh, uh, once one uh, saying of his, which he repeated often for me, and we tell that story in great detail in the book, was this. So what if you're thirsty? Be river for others. And uh, that had been life's journey. So what if you're thirsty? Be river for others. And uh, that had uh, left such an imprint, those uh, humble, modest, simple days on my life that uh, has enriched me. I, when I was growing up, I could never imagine that I'll be sitting among these wonderful people, so generous, so gracious, but my experience to America had been exceptional, uh, the goodness of this country. Uh, sometime I, when I speak about the positive experiences, the goodness and the generosity of this country, people begin to wonder and question my saying, and say, wait a minute, so you're saying this is the perfect place? I say, no, not at all, this is not the perfect place. There is so much more that we need to do towards social justice, towards equality, racial equality, towards the, uh, uh, our uh, political equality, economic equality, especially racial justice and all. There is so much more that we need to do. But comparing it with the rest of the world, we are in a, in a much better place. And I always pay tribute to our civil rights leaders. You know, when the day comes to vote, I, I, I am overwhelmed with the sacrifices of our civil rights leaders because person like myself, uh, that was not native-born or from here, uh, would not have the right, regardless of my citizenship, to vote. Uh, right to vote. Uh, right to vote is such a sacred right, meaning we determine who will govern us, what laws will rule us. It's uh, in democracy. It didn't come to us without the sacrifices of our civil rights leaders, how difficult 
uh, their uh, struggle was. So I fully remain cognizant. So from that humble beginning to sitting before you, it has been a long journey, but journey of gratitude. We are grateful, we are humbled, and the more I travel, uh, more aware I become how good this country is, how good, decent people are of this land. Uh, so those uh, earlier days have left amazing, amazing uh, uh, imprint on my life, in my heart, and on my soul, and I continue to carry that with me. Thank you, yes. Um, thank you for that. In the book, there are so many stories about, about this journey to America. It wasn't a very linear journey, you know, as one would imagine. And you tell in the book stories of small acts of kindness that made very big changes in your life. And maybe you can share stories of strangers that really kind of influenced and helped you in this um, journey to America. You know, there are some really inspirational stories in yeah. there. Yeah. Well, my life had been such that without the generosity of all, mm -hmm. uh, we would not have moved forward. Uh, the very first uh, interaction with America was in Dubai when I was employed. I traveled, I did not have much money uh, then. Uh, so coming to Dubai was uh, an effort to make life a little better so that I can complete my education. Uh, I get to Dubai on Friday night and I thought I will rent a hotel room. I was told that uh, hotels are so expensive they're unavailable. And uh, then in 19, this is 1974, uh, I couldn't afford, I counted the few dollars that I had in my pocket, I couldn't afford the hotel. So I asked the cab driver if I could uh, rent a place uh, somewhere where I can spend a couple of nights because I will be starting my work on Monday morning. This is Friday. He said, well, he has a room that I can rent from him, and I did so. It was just the floor and the walls and the door. So I said, this is fine. At least I'm not on the street. So my suitcase was my pillow, and my towel was my bed sheet, and I, I spent two nights there. Uh, uh, getting ready for Monday morning to go to work. So I show up at work on Monday morning. This is where America, I'm standing with, uh, with, uh, uh, with this nation. Uh, Alan, my boss, uh, then uh, I am introduced to him. I get to office and he takes me to his, his uh, his office, and he begins to explain that uh, this is your job. We are hiring lots of people that are coming from United States. This was an oil company that had set up its shop in Dubai to do the oil drilling and all. So I'm following him. All of these people will be coming. We have to arrange their immigration, their contracts, and families will be arriving and all of that. And then Five minutes into explaining this, he looks at me, he said, you look very tired. Where you been? What you, uh, where you have been staying? And I told him that I have rented a modest room, so I have not been sleeping well and all that. And so he continued to explain 
Then he picks up the phone and he calls somebody. And within 30 minutes of that call, a lady walks in and see, this is the generosity of America. His wife walks in and she introduces herself. My name is Lisa, I'm Alan's wife. Let's go. And I said, let's go where? So let's go your home. And I said, I don't have a home. And, uh, and I was embarrassed to take them to that room if that is what she meant. She said, no, 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 let's go. So we follow, Alan follows her and I follow Alan. All three of us get in her car and she drives to this uh, wonderful building. The company had rented many apartments for the new arrivals that were coming in from different parts of the world to work in Dubai. And they decided that I will have one of the apartments. So uh, she opens the door and we walk in. It's one bedroom, modest apartment. And uh, she points towards the bedroom. She said, this is your bedroom. Uh, I had uh, never seen before in my life three pillows on a bed. I was awestruck that there could be so many pillows on a bed. <laughs> then she points towards the restroom. There were towels and there were shower curtain. And uh, then um, um, towards the kitchen, plates and cups and spoons and forks. And then she opens the door of the refrigerator. There is bread and butter and jam. and. Uh, teapot is on top of the stove. She said, uh, uh, please rest. And Alan says that we will start your work tomorrow. And uh, they begin to leave. Uh, after, after they left, I was so humbled because of their generosity. My first encounter with the generosity of America. That had left such an, such an imprint on my heart that people could be so good. They did not owe me anything. They only owed me a paycheck at the end of the month. But this goodness, this generosity, this kindness towards a stranger, towards a subordinate, towards somebody that uh, had, uh, uh, that had, uh, you know, they did not owe anything to me, but uh, they showed that kindness, that generosity. And it did not end with this one act. Uh, when Ghazala and I got married, when she was coming, they somehow found out that uh, it is our tradition that parents go to receive the bride. The groom doesn't go. So they told me, they came to my office and they said, you will not go to receive her, we will receive her and bring her home and all that. So. So that goodness had continued. I, I narrate uh, some of these wonderful experiences that I have had out of goodness and the kindness and the pure, uh, genuine kindness without any purpose, without any, any, any interest. And uh, uh, so it is that that has uh, formed my journey uh, in, in America. And, uh, and I continue to see that and I continue to, uh, to experience that goodness. So, so I mean, um, book reviewers have described this memoir as a love affair with America and the U.S. Constitution. 
And we see from the story and others that your relationship with America was formed before you even set foot on this land. Yes. And what is really moving is, you know, that moment when you pulled out your constitution at the Democratic National Convention and challenged Trump, you know? I wish you would share with us the story of the very first encounter you had with the U.S. Constitution. Sure. When you were in Pakistan. Sure. Uh, first, waving that constitution wasn't uh, a challenge. Uh, it was a reminder of the goodness that we have in this document. That was, that was the purpose of that gesture, that look, this document prevails. It has prevailed for 230 years and it will continue to prevail. There had been anomalies in our history before as well, but those anomalies are gone and this goodness will prevail. So that was the purpose. My first love affair with the U.S. Constitution started in 1972 when I was 22 years old. I was second year law student in Pakistan. I took a course titled um, Comparative Study of World Constitutions. And four constitutions were part of that study, Constitution of Soviet Union. Yes, some of you must remember there used to be Soviet Union. And because they, would, they had continued to usurp the rights and dignities of all of its population, it shrunk, it broke apart, and it remains only Russia now. So remember that uh, history. So I read the Constitution of Soviet Union and then Germany and then Magna Carta, of course, that is the foundation of the British legal system. And then Constitution of United States. Uh, I brought the material, there was no textbook, and I placed the materials at the corner of the table. And uh, the very first page of those materials said this, July 1776, Declaration of Independence. I thought maybe that date is wrong because rest of the mankind, sometime Americans, my fellow Americans, my uh, uh, native born Americans do not pay attention to these details. 1776 and this nation is declaring its independence. I thought maybe this, there's a misprint but that was the date of the Declaration of Independence. We declared independence in 1776, and we declare, no one declares independence. You are given independence, you're given freedom from, by the colonized ruler, king, queen, whoever it is, uh, by the colonizer. And, uh, uh, but we declared our independence. Uh, rest of the mankind, subcontinent especially, continued to suffer for another 200 years. Africa continued to suffer. Uh, most part of Asia continued to suffer under colonization for many centuries. And uh, yet America had the wisdom and the spirit to declare its independence in 1776. Uh, I read the entire declaration standing. I remember that my feet were hurting, so I took my shoes off standing. But I read all 1,338 words of the Declaration of Independence in 72. I was in awe of the spirit of this nation, a spirit that 
my goodness, why couldn't the rest of the world declare its independence from colonization, but the rest of the world suffered? So next morning, because I only half understood it, I asked a friend of mine who was uh, doing his master's program in English literature to explain this to me. And uh, he explained entire Declaration of Independence to me. And then I read the articles, made excellent sense. This is how civilized people live under rule of law, separation of power, relationship between state governments and federal government, various offices, how they must behave and they must conduct what rule of law means in a democratic, civilized society. And then came the best part of the Constitution, our Bill of Rights. I read them with amazing, amazing awe in my mind and in my heart and in my soul that these rights, these are universal rights. These are universal truths. These are enshrined in our Constitution, in our Bill of Rights. Since then, I've been calling it, this is, these are human dignities that are enshrined in our Bill of Rights. And uh, so that love affair started then, and it has continued ever since. Mm -hmm. So um, this love affair with the Constitution, bringing it to today and now, are there any amendments or changes that you think uh, would be beneficial oh, to yes. this Constitution yes. at this time? Yes. <laughs> There is one that uh, somebody asked me in Atlanta. I was uh, uh, in an audience, and a young audience asked what amendment. I said, one amendment, number 27, and that would be that all Americans are required, and two elements to that amendment would be all Americans are required to read their constitution once at least in life and understand all three documents, the Declaration, the Articles, and then Bill of Rights from start to finish. And the second part would be that uh, all Americans must read the oath of citizenship that us immigrants take. Amazingly powerful sentiments expressed in that oath of citizenship that we take. I share with you the experience that I had when I took the oath of citizenship. I had lived twice in my life when I was a middle school student and then when I was a law school student, twice in Pakistan under martial law. Under martial law means that you can't just simply get up from your home and go and buy food or go and meet your friends or buy newspaper, not at all. The government has to give you permission. You have to have a Russian card with the stamp on it, how much rice you can buy, how much sugar you can buy. Newspapers, shut them down. They're fake media. You draw the conclusion under current circumstances and how autocrats, authoritarians behave and rule how these oligarchs and dictators have ruled the mankind. So I had lived under those circumstances twice. I have seen with my own eyes newspaper reporters were being beaten. I have seen with my eyes the press, Shoresh Kashmiri's printing press was burnt because he continued to publish 
critical articles about the dictator. So I have lived under those circumstances. I am now getting ready to take the oath of citizenship of this blessed land. I intentionally paused before I entered the courtroom to reflect because I had studied law in Pakistan and in United States. So I am fully aware of what these dignities that are enshrined in our Bill of Rights, the First Amendment, the 14th Amendment, Section 1, equal protection of law, equal dignity, the due process, freedom of practicing faith, freedom of press, freedom of assembly. These dignities mean so very much and I fully understand them being a student of law. So I paused and just to reflect what I did not have up until then. So I entered the courtroom, the federal courtroom, and I, uh, among others, many others, I uh, took the oath of citizenship. At the end of the oath ceremony, we are given a certificate which is mostly in green ink printed, and it says, Certificate of Naturalization and Citizenship. I looked at that certificate after the ceremony, and as I had reflected before entering the courtroom, that I did not have the dignities that are about to be bestowed upon me. To my eyes, full of tear and sentiment, those words of naturalization and citizenship looked, and even today, whenever I look at that certificate, it looks to me certificate of human dignity. That now the dignities that I did not have are guaranteed to me, that I have freedom of religion, I have freedom of press, I have freedom of expression, I am equal to everyone under the eyes of law, and uh, so that journey has, has, uh, has continued. As I mentioned, that there is so much. We have come long way with these ideals in place. We are not uh, there yet. So much more needs to be done to achieve those ideals. But the journey has continued. These are universal ideals. Talk to anybody from the darkest corner of the world. Uh, who has never heard of America, ask them, do you want to have freedom of expression? So you can say what you want to say. Freedom of press, freedom of assembly, freedom to practice your faith or not practice any faith. Everyone will tell you yes, but where can I find them? Well, in our constitution, those rights are guaranteed. It is that, that part of my journey of uh, hope and unity is to remind ourselves that uh, the foundation of this blessed nation and this blessed country is on solid foundation of goodness, solid foundation of human dignities, and which have prevailed. See, we celebrated 230 years of our Constitution, and we will continue to prevail. This anomaly that we are going through at this moment, people begin to wonder, wait a minute, what are you talking about? It doesn't seem like outside in the world, in our country, that, uh, that, uh, that these values are so prevalent. Uh, it, uh, it appears that hate and uh, divisiveness and division is prevailing. 
how come you continue to talk so passionately about these values? Well, here is the reason, and I offer you, we were talking earlier, proof how goodness prevails. I come from Charlottesville, Virginia. Some of you remember, you may have seen the ugliness in Charlottesville on 12th of August. That flag of hate and division, those chants of division and hate on the streets of Charlottesville. On Friday night, 12th of August, when that march took place with torches and neo-Nazi flag and, uh, and chants of hate and division. And then on 13th of August, Saturday afternoon, when my daughter, I call her my daughter out of affection, Heather Hare was murdered by the car driver who came from elsewhere to harass Charlottesville. But very few of you know what took place on Wednesday night. It was not announced, no media was invited, no media was informed, that's why it was not publicized. We decided to show our children what real America is, what true America is. So we all gathered word of mouth, telephone calls to each other, emails to each other. Let's assemble, let's bring our children to show them what real America is. We marched on the same street where that ugly march took place few nights ago. We went to the sacred ground of University of Virginia. We stood there with our children so they can see what true America is. And children were heartened when they saw families together, when they carried the candle as a symbol of hope and unity. And uh, we went home. Uh, children were heartened to see that this is what real America is. Uh, out of that came a sign, if you came to Charlottesville now, there is a sign that lots of homes have in front of their, their, their doors, and the sign reads this, no matter where you came from, you're our neighbors, welcome. That sign was because of that ugliness that was displayed on 12th of August and 13th of August. So that is the goodness of America that prevails. Then you saw a few weeks later in Boston, two dozen people showed up, same march and same uh, hatred on display. But then 40,000 Bostonians showed up to repel that hate and repel that ugliness from the streets of Boston. That spirit prevails throughout the nation, throughout the country. Every community is in full realization. Look here, we are all in full realization that that type of environment cannot prevail. We are all concerned. So you will say, well, offer us the proof. How are we repelling this? I gave you two examples of display of communities. But here comes the third example that all of us are going to exercise the power that we all have. I, as I said, I come from Virginia. We decided we will not have this negativity, this hate, and this division anymore. You remember 
7th of November, Virginia stood up. I went to some of the polling stations and I saw our women, our children, our men lined up to vote in thousands. In the history of Virginia, never so many people have voted. Our women were so determined to vote, they wore sneakers. Literally, you could see one type of uniform. They all wore sneakers because the reason was that there was a chance that so many people are voting, so we may have to, to stand in line. So they were wearing sneakers. They had overcoats with them just in case if it got cold. They had umbrellas in their hand just in case if it rained. They all came prepared. They brought their children with them just in case if we have to stand longer to conquer this hate and this division. And you know the results of that. That goodness of America prevailed and we repelled that this negativity, this division will not be tolerated in Virginia. And that is the power of when we come together, all of us, the goodness prevails. On 7th of November, I always say, that day is such a sacred day in the life of citizens of this democracy that we must exercise. Captain Himayun Khan, our son, wrote an article uh, when he was gaining admission to a dormitory in University of Virginia. And uh, the title of that article is, and this is so relevant today, that democracy requires vigilance and sacrifice. We all must be vigilant. Last year in election in 2016, America was not vigilant, was not paying full attention to what is taking place. Those who did not wish us well, cyber attacked us. They soared the division. They exploited the divisive issues among us. And here we are faced with this un-American hate and division. But it is, this anomaly is momentary. This will not last too long. We should remain hopeful. We should exercise our right on the day of election. We should show our power, the power of the goodness of this country, power that is enshrined in our constitution. So that is where the hope comes. That is spirit that we sit with tonight under this blessed place prevails, believe me, Toledo feels same way, Pittsburgh feels same way, Portland, Oregon feels same way, uh, Nebraska, Minnesota, uh, Texas, exactly same spirit. We are going to take our country back and we will put it on the right, right track. And uh, thank you. Thank you for bringing us all hope from your experience of traveling all over the country. Mr. Khan, thank you again for that message of hope. And something that stood out for me that was also hopeful for me uh, was uh, at a point in the book when you explained that Islam is congruent with the U.S. Constitution. You know, can you talk about that at this time in this climate in the U.S.? Sure. I thought that was, yeah. Sure. Well, my, um, my understanding of my faith is uh, very common among Muslims. For somehow, the, 
the violence had not been rejected. We reject uh, all sorts of violence, all type of violence. Uh, my grandfather uh, one day came to me and, uh, as a Muslim and asked me, where does God live? And I said, what a question. Uh, I told him up uh, towards the sky, that's where we point, God lives up there. <laughs> and he said that, uh, think about it. Uh, I said, okay, I will think, let me know. And he said, I'll let you know tomorrow. He wanted me to think. So I was 10 years old. To my simple mind at that time, God lived at a higher place. So I said, well, tomorrow I'll tell him he lives in mountains. Mountains are very high. God must live there. So, so next night comes, I am anticipating I have all day wandered, all previous night wandered, where does God live? So he comes and he said, have you thought of it where God lives? And I said, uh, up in heavens. And he said, uh, if that was the case, you know, we would never be able to reach him up there, but he must live elsewhere. So I wandered. I said, maybe he lives in the mountains. And uh, he said, well, if that was the case, the mountain dwellers would have found him. I said, okay. Then the second obvious was in the ocean. The ocean is big and wide and great. And uh, so he said, if that was the case, he would have, God would have been found by those who dwell in the ocean, but they have not found him. And I said, well, then, of course, in the forests. And he said, no, if that was the case. He was, in fact, reciting a Rumi's story, and, uh, uh, but in a, in a very personal way. Uh, I said, uh, it must be in forest. He said, if that was the case, the forest dwellers would have found him. So I said, okay, I give up. Please tell me. I have pondered it uh, since yesterday. So he raises his, uh, his blessed hand towards me and pointing this finger, index finger, towards my heart. And he brings it so close and he places it on my heart. And I still, even today, I feel that touch that uh, made me realize, he said, God lives here in, in every person's heart. Always, always know that each and every one has God in us. So extend the courtesy and the dignity of humanity, of being equal, of having equal dignity and all that to all, because all of us is a God in our hearts. And uh, so that is my definition in my faith about, uh, uh, about religion, about faith. There is another story that I tell, and my grandparents bless them, practice that. This is season of giving, and we are at a wonderful place. Uh, uh, sharing that story would be very appropriate. I used to complain twice in my life. I was, I think, 11 or 12 years old. Uh, at the end of Ramadan, fasting, there is a big celebration. Every family cooks lots of meals and prepares a feast and all. And uh, so one year, nothing is prepared. And I am 
concern. I said, why? We haven't cooked anything. I said, no, no, we will go to your parents' home and we will eat there. So we go there and, of course, there's food and we eat. But I was curious all of those months. And then comes the second festival um, and nothing is cooked. So I asked my grandmother quietly, I said, why we haven't prepared any meal? And uh, she said, uh, uh, I'm not supposed to tell you this, but I'll share this with you. Uh, last night, we, whatever we had, you know, we were very modest people. She said, whatever we had, we divided it into four parts. And your grandfather took it to those that did not have with small children, and we gave it to them. That is why we don't have anything to cook tonight. And uh, I was annoyed, of course, <laughs> but, uh, but I got the message. And since then, that had been the definition of faith for me, that it is same saying that he taught me when I was very young. So what if you're thirsty? Be river for others. Share, be kind, be generous, regardless of how modest that generosity could be. You know, generosity is not limited to, to having a whole lot and then you become generous. Not at all. Whatever you have, be generous. And that story of the prophet of the last pilgrimage defines Islam to me. You know, we get carried away with dogma of prayers, and those are important elements. The dogma is, of course, very important of all faiths. But sometimes we take that dogma too far. And my faith is defined in this story. My grandfather told me that, uh, he is paraphrasing that, that this was the last pilgrimage that Prophet was to perform. And all Muslims wanted to, majority of them wanted to join him to perform the pilgrimage. And uh, so people begin to assemble things, gather things, because uh, it took two weeks to travel to go and two weeks to come back. So you have to have enough to eat and enough to drink water and, and other uh, uh, things to sustain yourself while you're traveling. So a very modest person, poor person, had gathered food and water and everything to travel. Next morning is the day of traveling to perform the pilgrimage with the Prophet. And Prophet, peace be upon him, had announced that uh, this is probably my last pilgrimage because of my age and circumstances are such. Uh, so everybody was, uh, was uh, very much wanted to participate in that pilgrimage. Next morning, before next morning at night, uh, there is a knock at the door of uh, this person. And he opens the door and there is women standing with four small children. And she said, we are traveling from one place to another place before we get home. My children are hungry. They have not eaten and I am also hungry. Can we get some food from you? And he pauses. He had saved everything to travel, to perform this dogma of religion, to perform the pilgrimage and uh, his heart melts, he invites them and feeds them food and, uh, and uh, asks them that you stay tonight here and then in the morning you can start your travel again. So they stay at night at his home, humble home. And the next morning when they are leaving, he gives them 
whatever else he had so they can travel with some sustenance with them. And he, of course, he's unable to travel for pilgrimage with Prophet, peace be upon him. Uh, he's disappointed, heartbroken, but anyway, after the pilgrimage, Prophet comes back and, uh, and uh, asks one of his companions to bring this person to the mosque. And uh, he's brought to the mosque, and he's afraid that Prophet is going to admonish him that why didn't you go for pilgrimage? He's afraid traveling to the mosque, and Prophet congratulates him, says, congratulations, your pilgrimage was accepted ten times. He said, he said, you must be mistaken. I didn't even go. I couldn't go because I just did not have much sustenance to travel. I didn't go. Prophet said, that is the purpose of your faith. That is the purpose of all of these dogma, is to help others, those who need your help, be kind and be generous. So that was the definition given to me of my faith, that dogma is good, but your faith, helping other human beings, being kind, being generous, that is of the essence of my faith. So that's how Islam lives in my heart and in my soul and in my mind. Thank you. That was very beautiful. Thank you. And I just wanted to um, mention that the second half of the book um, reads like a tribute to your um, son, Captain Humayun Khan. It's filled with stories about his courage and his service. And you describe how whenever you have to make a decision in life that might be difficult or a choice, you ask yourself, what would Humayun do? How has this question guided your um, kind of um, entry into public life? Yeah, we were very reluctant when the invitation came, uh, when that bigoted statement of banning Muslims, throwing Hispanics out of country, they're criminals and judges are partial and women don't deserve equal dignity. When that statement was made, Small children, middle school, elementary school kids, whenever we would go to the birthday party of our grandchildren or uh, our sons' uh, friends' homes, uh, all in Charlottesville, these kids and their parents would approach me knowing that I practice law. Uh, is this possible if this candidate became president? Is this possible that we will be thrown out of here? We will be banned in coming to this country, and I would hearten them. I would read them 14th Amendment, Section 1, equal protection of law, that we are citizens, you're born here, you have equal dignity and equal uh, protection of law. But these children were not uh, heartened. They would remain worried. They will not eat properly, won't, were not interested in their homework. So we are aware of this taking place. Kids are asking us these questions. And then comes the invitation to speak at the DNC. And I narrate that story in the book in, in great detail, all aspects of it, that how the tribute came to be. Uh, so we sat for two days after the invitation because they, I asked them, can we think about it? Our other two sons, I called them, told them that this invitation is pending. Should we go? And they told us, do not go. This is not your cup of tea. You do not, uh, um, uh, your peace and your, the way you have lived your life peacefully, humbly, modestly, 
um, it will all be disturbed. And we thought they're being overprotective. We talked to a couple of other friends and they told us exactly the same thing. Do not get involved with this because this political limelight is uh, not your character. Uh, so we sat for two days praying and hoping that some guidance will come. And in the room where Captain Himayun Khan's portrait uh, is placed, we have a small room dedicated to him. And uh, uh, talking back and forth, Ghazala and I, should we go, shouldn't we go? What about these children that are asking us these questions? Uh, how would we face them if we refused in our conscious, in our mind? How would we deal with that? And then came a small card in the mailbox uh, from the middle school, the name of the school on top of it, and four middle school students wrote that card. And this is the line that sent us. It's sometime it is that simple. That line sent us there. And that line said, Mr. And Mrs. Khan, would you make sure that Maria is not thrown out of this country? She's our friend. We love her. I read that card twice, standing next to the mailbox. And I walked rather faster to come to uh, living room and showed that card to us. And I said, see, we've been praying for two days that some guidance should come. This card has come to us. And she looked at it and eyes welled. She told me, she said, call, call DNC now and we will go. And we went and we spoke. So we spoke on behalf of those worried children that were threatened, that took that threat so seriously that they were not eating, they were not sleeping, they were not doing their homework, they were not interested in going to school, afraid that uh, if they went to school, their parents may be taken away from them. It was those children that sent us there, and it is them that has convinced us that we continue to speak. I received a uh, thousands of letters, cards, very encouraging, some ugliness as well, but most of them very encouraging. One letter that I must mention, a 26-page letter, and uh, it is written by a retired army nurse. She served in Second World War. See, speaking is so important under current circumstances. We don't have to do the demonstration. Of course, that is important as well. Participation and speaking and coming together like this is absolutely necessary. She says, Mr. Khan, I served in Second World War. I have seen what took place. Had more people spoken, we could have avoided the Second World War we could have avoided the atrocities that were committed against the mankind in Second World War. We could have avoided the atrocities that were committed against our Jewish brothers and sisters. But not very many people spoke. So continue to speak. And I continue to speak. And I remind myself, it's not, uh, it is what is taking place against Muslims. It's nothing new. In 1882, Chinese Exclusion Act was passed. Chinese brothers and sisters came to work hard to establish the railroad, to establish, to do the hard work to this nation.
that Exclusion Act was passed. That is history now and how wonderfully established our Chinese-American community is. Same thing in 1942, Japanese-American internment executive order was passed. Look at the difficulties of our African-American brothers and sisters that they have gone through. I have read a book, it's called Green Book. Green Book was written by a postal worker out of New Jersey, where he describes what difficulties our African brothers and sisters used to have to travel from north to south, because some of them have migrated from, north, from south to north, and they used to go to visit them. Nobody would sell them water. Nobody would sell them gasoline. Nobody would give them groceries. So they were told through this green book that please take these items with you. The difficulties that we all have, the reason I narrate these stories because all of our communities have gone through these difficulties. Well, we have prevailed, the goodness of this country has prevailed. The generosity of this nation has prevailed. And that is where the hope comes from, that if we can survive all that, that is part of our history, we will prevail, the goodness of this country will prevail. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mr. Khan. It's Thank you. Thank you an honor to have you here tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrer at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu podcast.